Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Geekscapists, welcome to a brand new Geekscape podcast. I'm Jonathan London, your host. If this is your first Geekscape, well, where have you been for the last 15 years? No, 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 no. We are not going to start this show with shaming you for not knowing about Geekscape. Uh, It's totally cool. And I imagine a lot of you have not heard of Geekscape because our numbers have been bananas in the last month. Um, This is a show that, uh, as far as the downloads go, we've quadrupled in the last month. I don't know what that is about. I really don't, but uh, if you're doing word of mouth, if you're sharing this with your friends, if you are telling your friends to subscribe, if maybe you're watching this on YouTube and you've become a podcast listener on any podcatcher that we're available on, all those things have really, really helped. So if you're watching this on Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, or I just added my LinkedIn, maybe you're watching on LinkedIn. I don't know. You're a business professional or you're looking for a job. I don't, I don't really know. Uh, maybe you're watching this on Twitter. If you're watching this, I love having you hit a share button, hit a subscribe button, whatever you got, and be a part of this next week. Um, if you're listening on the podcast app, which is where a lot of you are, um, I really do appreciate it. Hit whatever share button you've got on your podcast app, share Geekscape with your friends, and just know that there's a ton of awesome stuff coming up in the Geekscape, um, we have got some new shows. I went to hang out with the $2 uh, Late Fee guys. They're new to the network. $2 Late Fee celebrates all this 80s music and uh, film. Uh, they've got Barry Boswick from Megaforce coming up on the show. I know that they uh, have a ton of these 80s stars on the show, and they're a lot of fun. We tried to go see Moonfall. The projector broke. I ended up watching Scream. I enjoyed it. But if you want to hear more about it, you probably should go over to the Horror Movie Night podcast over here on Geekscape. They're a good one. Uh, and we also added Masters of the Media. Two weeks ago, y'all really enjoyed Garrett Briones being a guest. Well, he and his roommate Jack do a show now on the Geeks Game Network called Masters of the Media. And this episode they just put out, uh, we got the Batman coming out, Matt Reeves' Batman movie with Robert Pattinson. And they took a look at Frank Miller's Batman Year One in this most recent episode. And they're like, okay, let's take a look at Frank Miller's Batman Year One and let's talk about how some of this stuff might end up in Matt Reeves' movie. It's kind of cool. Compare and contrast the comic books to the film. It's a new show here on Geekscape. And I told y'all we were going to uh, put up the, that new show about undiscovered Hollywood scripts. And the first one's out now. Uh, just search for it. Um, all that information is on our socials. Follow Geekscape and all that. Okay, enough of the plugs. We have an amazing show for y'all uh, coming up. My good buddy Jonah Tullis is on. He's directed this documentary about, do y'all remember this? A year ago when GameStop uh, did like a short squeeze on all these hedge funds in Chicago and New York. Uh, and we just saw this GameStop stock go from like $2 to $40 to like 
hundreds of dollars. And as we were watching it in July, just of last year, we were like, whoa, this GameStop stock is going through the roof. And then there was all sorts of controversy with people in Robin Hood. There was a congressional hearing. It's a crazy story. And it happened just a, it literally happened a year ago. So how did I hear about the story becoming a documentary that's in theaters now? My friend Blake Harris produced it, of course. Blake, you know him from Console Wars. He's been on the show many times. Uh, well, he produced the movie along with Jonah Tullis. And they basically did a 12-month-plus dash to get this thing in theaters right now. Um, it's available, and you should watch it. I saw the film yesterday, and it's a crazy story. Jonah's on the show to tell you all about it. So let's get a little Geekscape going. What do you say? Hey, Geekscapists, welcome to uh, Geekscape. Thank you for joining us. If you're watching live, well, this is like two in the afternoon uh, here in Los Angeles. But if you're listening on the podcast, which the majority of you are, maybe you're out there on a run or you're at work or you're driving in your car. However you're listening to Geekscape, I'm just glad you're with us because we've been putting the show out for free for 15 years. And all we ask in response or <laughs> in return, I think is the term. I think that's it. All we ask in return Let's get into your hosting gear, Jonathan, is uh, you share the love. However you want to do that. Maybe it's uh, sharing an episode with your friend or it's joining one of our social media accounts or sending me an email, jonathangeekscape.net, and being like, hey, Jonathan, you do a good show or this is how it could be better or I hate your guts. Whatever you want to send, it doesn't matter. You're all part of it. Okay. GameStop, Rise of the Players. Let's get Jonah in here and tell you about this crazy story. He He's coming in from New York. And Jonah, thanks for joining the show, buddy. Hey, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Uh, I like seeing New York through your windows. Those of you who are listening, you can't see it. But I have a fond uh, memory of living in New York at this time and uh, being like, you know what? When's this, when's this cold going to go away? <laughs> and then it doesn't go away until April. But it's 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 nice to look at. You know, how are you holding up in this winter? You know, today was one of those days where it kind of it kind of felt like it was about to turn, but then I remembered it's February, and yeah, maybe we got a day or two, and then it's going to be fifteen degrees again. But whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So that is the most New York attitude huh. for living in those conditions. That this guy here in sunny California can just like I can say that and be like, you know what, man? Like it, it, I think that is such a New York thing. And I was talking to a filmmaker last week. Uh, and she's in Queens and she grew up in Brooklyn and she was like, you know what? This is just the way it is. This is what part of who I am. And I was like, but does it have to be? <laughs> I may, I maybe just have like thin skin or something. I can't do the cold, man. Um, but you're there and you, you got good, good reason to there uh, to be there because uh, Blake is nearby. How did you meet Blake Harris? Well, it's funny. Blake, who, you know, directed consoles with me and wrote the book Console Wars, he, um, we actually went to high school together, but we were a year apart. 
So we didn't really know each other. We like knew of each other. And uh, after college, we were playing on an adult softball team and started throwing around ideas. He he was doing a lot of sort of creative writing. I was doing a lot of filmmaking and like sort of doing a lot of corporate type gigs at the time. And uh, we came together and started started this partnership that's kind of evolved into what it is today, which is sort of it's you know obviously we do scripted, but and Blake does a lot of books, but we're also sort of doing a lot in this premium doc space, which has been like so fun and so exciting. I think it is kind of crazy that you know he writes this book console wars the geekscape is if you're a longtime geekscape listener you're more than familiar with console wars because blake's been on the show several times um y'all put the documentary out i think it premiered in south at south by a few years ago and what luck that you had a lot of that 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 filmmaking background but also that infrastructure in place because whereas that documentary took a little bit of time. It wasn't, um, it wasn't, I don't long, know. It, it, was, it did take a long, I mean, it, there's yeah, a I mean, big story. I didn't want to say it took forever, but, <laughs> well, it took but, for, but you, now you had that all in place because this documentary did not take a long time because no. the events that you're documenting just happened last year. Well, I would say the last one took a long time. You know, it's actually funny. The book, we, we brought the book and the book idea and the doc idea to Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg and James Weaver at Point Grey and they decided to get on board for everything. Seth helped him set up the book and Scott Rudin at the time as well. Set, set up the book. They financed the initial parts of the doc. And then they set up a movie version that Seth and were going to direct to Columbia Pictures. Uh, and then things just got slow in the Hollywood side. And then we were waiting for more funding. But Blake was still able to release the book pretty early. And then we were on hold for a little bit. Um, and then, you know, in, in due fashion, we were supposed to premiere at South by Southwest and then go into theaters. And... Um, and unfortunately, you know, COVID happened that month. And but thankfully, we had a really big release in September of that year, which was exciting. And you know, that's it's uh, it was a wild a wild ride. This one was sort of kind of came into my lap in a funny way. Somebody who loved console wars was like, "You gotta figure out this GameStop thing." Like, what before it was really picking up steam. This would crazy. be like September of 2020, maybe. It was a little later than that. It was it was okay. a little, it was just more like December at the time. So it was really picking up, and I was kind of looking at it, and I kind of got embedded with some of these subjects as this was all going on, and I saw the story developing. And meanwhile, there's all sorts of other Hollywood projects getting announced, and uh, it was pretty wild. And I I kind of took a look at the people who were committed to making this film with me, and you know went to our partners at Submarine Entertainment, and. Uh, we decided to go for it. I mean, it really was much like console wars. It's like, wow, these people are so interesting. Well, console wars, it was, they didn't have to be a video game company. They could have been a tissue tissue company and doing the same kind of, you know, inventive marketing techniques and it would still be interesting to me. Um, and I found the same sort of people in that story. But I mean, this is also the kind of thing where, I mean, with console wars, that story, like you said, is so good. It also just happens to be about Sega and Nintendo. And that gives you that built-in audience. And knowing Blake for as long as I've known him, he's a fan of this stuff. You know, and I, although what you say is true, that the characters in the story are that good, um, the fact that you all are passionate about this stuff and just know the material really, really, really shows. And it showed in that book. The book was phenomenal. And then it showed in the documentary. This feels like if Blockbuster stuck together or if i mean let's take a let's yeah let's take the the example from your from your film like if blockbuster sticks together and they start putting out these two packs of dvds this one gamestop 
in console wars would have been packaged and sold together <laughs> once they were like in a discount bin. Does that make sense? They yeah. share DNA. Yeah, no, I think that I think that, you know, when we first looked at this story, um, you know, it was obviously a lot of research. We're talking about 15, 20 hours of interviews before we even sit down with them, just to understand their story and, and who they are and talking to all sorts of These are people. over the phone. This is over the phone. Oh, some Zoom yeah. and some over the phone. Um, okay. I feel like you would do some, uh, you would do the ones on the phone, kind of get sort of the sense of who they are and do Zoom when you kind of wanted to see what they were like on camera. I think that was, that's a part of it. Um, but, you know, it's a story about financing, about people who were involved with finance during COVID pandemic, which meant they were at their computers. And this console wars was a business story that happened 30 years ago. So we didn't have a lot of footage behind the scenes. So we had to bring you in that world in an interesting way. And of course we did with the animation and sort of, you know, taking you back into that world and into that in an interesting, fun way. And I think that, you know, you can't really use that kind of gaming animation in anything but a movie like console wars or, or rise of the players. Right. And in the, in a way, like stylistically, at least it does share that DNA, uh, but they are still animations. And this is a really truncated schedule for any film that y'all were working with. So in December, let, let's go back to your story of putting this thing together. In December of 2020, you're starting to think about what is happening. At that point, the stock is starting to show life. And GameStop is a stock that people were, and it's documented in the film, you should all see it. People were just lambasting GameStop as being a trashy place. As somebody in the comments was saying earlier, uh, yes, they only gave trade-ins on like games for like penny credits, right? Like, I mean, I think everybody watching this or listening to this has gone into GameStop for a trade-in and been like, you got to be kidding me, dude. This is a brand new game that I've only played for a month and you're giving me $3 for it or something like that. We've all felt that way about GameStop. The stock is dead. A lot of people believe it's dead. Yet there were these few people who were saying, there's something that's going on here and it's going to pop. And it, I think by the time you started seeing it and we all started seeing it in December 2020, it had started to have like some life built around the pandemic and we're all playing video games. We're stuck there for a bit. Maybe some massive like underestimation of the stock. But who thought it was going to pop like it popped here beyond the people who are in this film? A lot of this is just about faith, too. No, absolutely. I mean, I think, listen, in, initially, you know, way back in 2018, when some of our you know investors were getting involved with this, it was, okay, this is $2, but maybe it can be worth 5 or 6 You know, it's not a bankrupt company. Yes, the shorts are going after it, but they're, they have cash. They have, you know, the cash on hand out, I believe, the, at, there are certain points where the cash on hand was more valuable than, you know, their stock showed. And so that was sort of the initial thesis. And then as things GameStop kept, had yeah, GameStop. cash on hand. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So so sort of as things progressed, you know, one thing on top of the next, and you learn that Microsoft also had a digital revenue sharing deal with them. So it wasn't all that. You know, characters like Rod Alsman in our film were doing were, were were sourcing online orders during COVID and kind of seeing that, oh wow, their online business is picking up. And at the same time, Ryan Cohen kind of came in as a as the white knight. And um brought new life to the idea that this could be an e-commerce company. That being said, while I was filming, I went into a couple of GameStops and they're, some of them are pretty, still pretty sad. You know, they're still not, yes. they feel like a relic of a bygone era, but there is this exuberance and this, this nostalgia to it that brought, that brought people back to trying to save it. And I do think you're going to go to a GameStop in a year or two and it's going to look a lot different. You know, it's not going to have that terrible carpet. It's, it's, it's going to, you know, it's not, it's not going to be one of those empty places without energy. And one of those things that we you know, touch on in the movie is the Tulsa experiment, which is where they 
kind of went into GameStops and Tulsa and kind of completely revitalized them and made them more of an interactive experience, which I think, you know, once we start dealing with esports, what if a GameStop could be, you know, an esports venue mm-hmm. on a small scale? You know, there's a lot of different ways it could go. And sort of all of these ideas and the fact that GameStop is the name in gaming, you know, they are the name for retail gaming. There was value there. Yeah. And a lot of us just didn't see it It, because we'd lived through Blockbuster. And that's the comparison you get a lot of times in the early parts of this movie is that while the stock is $2 and companies are shorting it, big hedge funds are shorting it in the hopes that it bankrupts and they at least make that $2 short on a wide swath. um, There is that thing going on, the pandemic, the e-commerce, the PS5 and Xbox One being really, really hard to find, but um, but every single console they're selling. Um, the other things that are going on was, I think I noticed in during the pandemic when the, the GameStop started opening up again, you'd walk in and they started to have a lot of tabletop. They started like expanding things, not just into their figures and stuff, because that had been happening um, where you'd go and get action figures and things like that at the GameStop. But you were actually starting to see them not just do video games, but starting to do tabletop. And tabletop was exploding at the time, too. So I think you're right. In a year, we may go in here and into a GameStop, and maybe you start seeing it not just look a little bit more like like what you said at Best Buy, where maybe there's a, some places to play games, and maybe those games are wired into a, a hub. But you also see some tabletop games. A, more like a socialization center of a GameStop, which coming out of a pandemic, people might actually want. Um, this that was guy the essence who, of the Tulsa experiment. It's crazy. That was the, sort yeah. of, it was, and also like kind of build your own computers and sort of learning that element of things. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, listen, I think that if you really break it down, you're talking about a fun, cool e-commerce play with Ryan Cohn behind it at this point, but you're also talking about the NFT marketplace. There's so many other ways that they can kind of raise revenue um, and, you know, I think the, you know, there really is the sky's the limit. Um, there, there is also sort of the sort of there, there's two different worlds. There's the sort of people who believe in the company. And then also there's people who believe that it's a great short opportunity or continuing to be a great short opportunity. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a complicated world out there when it comes to the stock. Can you explain that uh, to people like myself who are a bit more of a like a layman? Your your documentary actually does a great job of of explaining the economics. Uh, I was telling you before we started recording that about forty minutes of the early part of the film is just setting the stage of all these pieces that lent itself to this thing exploding. And like Ryan Cohen, right, the person who started Chewy dot com, which is a dog food or, or pet food and product company on e commerce, and turned it into a huge company. I think when he came over to GameStop and people were like, oh my God, this Ryan Cohen guy sees value in GameStop. That was kind of like the lighting of the fuse, but the fuse had long since been set both in what GameStop was doing, um, kind of what the geography of gaming was at the time. And then what, uh, what, what you're saying as well with, um, I've lost my train of thought, but I think like the, the pandemic, can you, uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry, the Wall Street element of it. Yeah, Can you so explain the short and all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So there were there were there were, our story starts with sort of the people who saw this as a value investment said, okay, PlayStation, Xbox have new systems coming out. There's value there. It's not a three dollars stock. They're going to sell those. They they have disk drives. They're not just digital. Most of the argument has been 
oh, you can buy your games online. So so it's game over for GameStop. Nobody's going to shop in the stores anymore. And that's but, the comparison to Blockbuster. They're going to yes. become Blockbuster. Exactly. Right. And Netflix is going to you know put you know throw them out from you know off the off the <laughs> from off the ravine. Right. Um, but what happened is so they saw the value in it that, and they saw that there was another console cycle happening at the same time. A lot of the, our subjects started to realize that these hedge funds were heavily short GameStop, and what that means is the hedge funds had basically bet against the company, and them betting against the company, they they basically bet against it, and by them betting against it, they are almost pushing the stock further and further down. And it got to the point where you know you could you could borrow a certain percentage of stock from sort of brokers and stuff like that, and in a somewhat synthetic way, there was almost 140 percent of the stock was shorted, which meant. You know, if there was any sign of it going up, you know, Ryan Cohen or whatever, these shorts were going to get blown out of the water and the price would go up and then they would be forced to sell because the price would go up so high. There's a lot of controversy over whether it was technically a gamma squeeze, which is a bit harder to explain, a short squeeze, or whether some, some people even believe there was no short squeeze and that the price increase was all based on retail investors getting involved. Um, but the evidence does suggest there was a short squeeze. I can't say what's going to happen in the future, but basically that short squeeze happened because of three things. You had people who believed in an undervalued company, these shorts believing it was dead and they were going to continue to, to pound it down into the ground to bet against it per se. And then you had, um, Ryan Cohen come on, which helped shoot up the price and, and sort of then you had sort of the Wall Street bets and online community come on to really keep buying and raising the price along with Ryan Cohen. And as that price went up, these hedge funds had to sell off their, their shares that they had shorted or sh- sell off their positions. And uh, they lost billions and billions loss. of dollars. Yeah. Which is nuts. And we watched the stock. I mean, at the beginning of pandemic, this stock is $2 maybe. Is that right? And then... In that $2.80. Before, you're, I mean, you're talking it, about it was nothing. Right. So you could have bought hundreds of these things, thousands of these things. And the people that you follow in the documentary are follow are buying at in mass on this stuff. One of them is a financial advisor. And for his clients in the Midwest, they're farmers, they're blue collar people. He's putting the bet into this, the GameStop because he sees exactly what you're saying. Maybe, you know, if I just buy a bunch of $2.80 stocks, if this thing just goes to $5, which is probably going to happen with new consoles from Xbox and Sony coming out, it's probably going to happen that we that this thing goes to $5. I'll make, you know, Jerry down the street some money so that he can, you know, breathe a little, you know, a little easier uh, because he's in he has a farm, right? You got this financial advisor as one of the characters in the film. And he None of them could have imagined that this stock was going to hit forty dollars and then go into the hundreds, and they're buying these things for two dollars and eighty cents. We all looked up. Oh, sorry, Matt Kelly just added a a show to the Geekscape Network. That's what that siren means, I guess. Oh, I was um, going to say so, I'm the one in New York, yeah. and the sirens going up on your end. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, Geekscape is that's a uh, Geekscape Network just getting bigger. That's the inside joke here because Matt is adding shows at such a pace. Um, so. Did you when you're when you get this idea in December, you'd seen kind of like that September, you know, October Ryan Cohen boost where three of these things had been triggered and the stock went to what point? At what point in December of 2020 
did you start thinking, hey, maybe we have a movie here? Listen, I think it was. I think listen, I don't think we decided we had a movie till February. I think that okay. you know I'd been hearing about this from sort of a, a, a quirky friend for almost all of the year of twenty twenty. And, and then, he's on Reddit or something, and he's in. He is. Yeah, he's, he's in all these Reddit communities. Community. I wouldn't say he's Reddit. I, he was. He was really a Mark Michael Burry guy. He saw Michael Burry investing this in 2019, and he mm. was super, super, super early. I wouldn't say you know our subjects are the ones who are sort of doing the interesting due diligence. This sort of friend of mine was one who was like, "Wow, this is cool, and I see what's happening here, and I'm on board." But he wasn't, you know, doing analysis and creating charts and, and understanding. Mm. He wasn't in that. He was sort of absorbing other people's information. The subjects in our film were the people creating that data based off of stuff they saw, or sort of, you know, even you know the due diligence of the retail community and, and the small investment houses like Domo Capital, Justin, who you were talking about earlier, is really incredible and, you know, unrivaled, you know, by the hedge funds in this particular situation. Um, I loved that sequence of the movie where you realize that these this community of Redditors or people who are watching on uh, streams, uh, they're, they're sitting at home, like you said, in front of the computers. And in the process of doing that and having this community of X number of people, they're able to do the research and analysis on this stock and on the marketplace better than the hedge funds can. They're just more of them and they have time on their hands during the pandemic. And they did a pretty insane analysis of not only can this stock hit 40, the stock can actually skyrocket well past it if certain things fall into place. And as you watch this film, and I, I guess when you started realizing a year ago that let's rock on this movie at that point in January, this thing had popped in insane way. And then you started to have the, the, the issue with Robin hood and the Congress taking a look at it. Um, what was happening when you finally said, Hey, uh, let, let's make this movie. This, this is actually a, a phenomenon and Hollywood was also paying attention at the time, wasn't it? Yeah. So it, it is interesting. I decided to, to do this movie because I got, I mean, I wasn't going to do this without basically exclusive access to our subjects because, you know, no financier is going to distribute something where it's people who are sort of doing everything. So it was really just getting these subjects and being like, all right, they trust me. I trust them. We're going to tell this story together. Um, and, and again, see where it goes because there was, there was a lot of, things left to come. The, when we decided to do this, the congressional hearings hadn't happened yet, you know, and, and, you know, you could say what you will about them, you know, I don't think much came from them in the end, but you know, the, the sort of the aftermath of Robin hood hadn't fully developed yet, you know? So it basically had to say, okay, this is the story we have now and what's the story to come and where is this going? And, and I think that I sort of always see this as like an origin story for this new movement in general, like GameStop was the first of sort of, many of these, not just meme stocks, like, like a participation of retail in a way that's never been seen before. And, and you know what, listen, Robinhood as, as, as kind of messed up what they did and sort of as clunky as their business became, you know, gave access to a lot of people, you know, who wouldn't be investing otherwise. And, you know, there are other sort of uh, markets like that as well. But Robinhood really is the, you know, the face of that retail um, trading platform. Were they the only ones that were, that, were quote unquote forced somehow to freeze when this thing hit $261 or so, whatever it hit. And people started being like, Hey, it's time to go out. The, the, the squeeze has been squeezed. Like this short squeeze, which forced all these hedge funds to completely collapse their shorts. You squeezed them completely and all the juice is out. 
now it's time to go. A lot of people turned on their Robinhood and selling this GameStop stock had been frozen. Were there other apps that maybe that were there were a few others. Robin, there were a few others, but it, it wasn't a matter of each app kind of was a little bit different in how they approached it. it you know, one, maybe you couldn't buy options on it. or um, But typically for, with Robinhood, it was they stopped the, the selling, stopped the buy, buying of GameStop. And if you stop you the buying, on it, right. I mean, it's, it's, the it's supply and demand. Like, you know, right. it's going to crash. So truth be told, this stock should have gone way higher and the hedge fund should have been in, in a lot deeper. Because, I mean, who knows? Listen, nobody really, people say the stock could go to a million dollars a share in the right squeeze situation. I don't know that. I'm not an expert. The people I talked to thought it could have gone way higher. You know, it could have gone to a thousand maybe, but maybe more. I don't, I don't know. But but them stopping trading, you know, put an end to that and, and stop the hedge funds bleeding quite a bit. That being said, you know, it, you know, there is this one thing that we sort of really investigated and looked into was did sort of these big companies like Citadel, Point72, did they push Robinhood because of their relationship to stop trading? And uh, there's really no evidence to that to that point. And Rod Alsman says it best that he thinks that their communication was terrible and that it was a liquidity issue. Um, that Robinhood just couldn't, if people wanted to start selling, Robinhood would have never been able to cover that stuff. I mean, I Is think that, that mean? I, be, I mean, to, to an effect, but it, it basically... Robinhood couldn't handle that trading. They weren't. They weren't going to be able to cover. Basically, their entire business model would collapse had they didn't. And you know what? It makes sense. It was a yeah. once. It probably a once in a lifetime type of situation where these they these guys weren't prepared for it as their company was sort of progressing. But you know that's probably what I believe. There there, there was there was definitely something more nefarious. You know, a little bit in in the weeds there, but. From all the evidence that I've seen and all the, the experts I've talked to, um, including some of our subjects, it seems that it was just they were just they're they were terrible communicating what was happening. Again, totally wrong for them to shut it down, and it it took money out of the hands of retail investments, as Justin Doverall said. It take, took money out of their hands and into the hedge funds by by stopping the trading. But it may have been because of it a bit inadvertent because of you know them being not able to handle what was really happening. But you started to see the ripple effect, and I remember when I, I had a, a uh, I had a roommate, an ex roommate, Mark, who's now into like the NFT stuff that I'm very cynical about, and he's into the crypto and that stuff. Um, this is different. This is the stock market. This is the regulated one that people are into that that's existed for a very long time. Uh, and you're right, Robinhood and those apps give access. Uh, but you did see a, uh, and I remember Mark telling me, "Hey, have you seen this GameStop thing?" And this is probably January when everything was really starting to skyrocket there. And I kept thinking, dude, it's too late to jump on this GameStop train. It probably was. It was It was probably around $100, $120 at that time. I could have doubled the money, but that, you know, at that point, it's a little bit more of an investment. What's 2020 the, is always hindsight. I mean, 20, 20, what if Robin had cut it off at $100? What would have happened? You know? Exactly. And, but you did start seeing Matt Kelly still adding shows to the network. This is fantastic. <laughs> Matt, slow down. I'm going to have to cut Matt Kelly off is what I'm going to have to do. Uh, <laughs> Matt, no, we don't have the liquidity for all these podcasts. Um, one thing that you start, did start to see is that ripple effect where like AMC and like TGI Fridays or whatever, all these other stocks started to get affected by people looking for that next kind of unicorn. Yeah. But was that amateur analysis compared to what our team here in the documentary had done, the subjects of your film? Wait, say that again. Sorry. 
like like when you start to see like AMC or like TGI Fridays or whatever the other meme like, are these meme stocks like whatever AMC, these other stocks Roll, BlackBerry. Listen, in the end, the GME there's a lot of GME purists, GameStop purists who believe that none of those other stocks have fundamental reasons. Um, but it gets to a larger issue. You know what I mean? Like BlackBerry shouldn't have been going up. They don't have fundamental reasons to go up. They don't have a Ryan Cohen. They don't have the Microsoft deal. They don't have these things. I don't think they have products anymore, do they? I believe they do. But- I mean, like, didn't they, they shut down BlackBerry's thing a while ago? I'm not even sure, to be no, honest. I don't even know. They, they, they're still a company. Just kidding. Maybe it's maybe their data. Right. Maybe they're maybe they're business facing or probably sure. part of what they are. But here's the thing that's crazy: this 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 thing developed after after our story, which I think is the story of these people who started all. There's this new story that developed, and this new story, you know, people refer to them as the apes. You know, these are people, some of them who bought it at 300 and then lost a lot, but are holding this stock because. It's a it's a statement. It's a statement that they're going to hold the stop stock and just like with AMC and wait for it to squeeze. And if they keep holding it and buying more, it's going to squeeze the hedge funds even more. And, and maybe it'll hit a thousand. Is what they're hoping. Sometimes for. they think I it'll mean, hit a million. You know, I, 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 I and, again, and these like, are the diamond hands people. The diamond hands. people who are like diamond hands, baby, yep. hard as a rock. I'm not. I'm not letting go of this thing. I mean, you start to see that when Doge dipped. You started to see the people being like, buy the dip, and they're on the train. The Doge stuff, and why I'm skeptical of the crypto thing, is it just feels like if somebody goes on SNL and says a few words, and completely, like, it feels like this stuff is very influencer-based with some of these crypto stocks. And if somebody can go on and use this wide, like this huge influence to, to affect the thing, it's not the democratization of the financial department at all. Well, it is I mean, very manipulatable. Well, listen, Elon Musk, in, in a way, you know, did this for GameStop. He tweeted GameStop in the middle of this, and the stock skyrocketed. That's you know, right. uh, the question is, what is manipulation? So there is an equivalent to it, yeah. There is. No, I, I mean, I think, think? I, mean, I, I think I'm not an expert in what market manipulation is. It seems like there was a an effort on be on part of the government to accuse some subjects in the film or some subjects sort of out in the world of, of GameStop of manipulating the market. You know, Roaring Kitty, for instance, was, you know, got in some trouble for that. But I don't I think it's unfounded. Like he didn't manipulate the market. He had a stream where he gave due diligence, you know, and, and very due diligence. Yeah. I mean this is this is this is not just a pump scheme that, you know, is happening on TikTok with a very specific meme coin. You know, right. And also it's a big difference because a lot of these meme coins, you can't even can't even sell. You, you, you hold them and then there's nobody to buy them and the market crashes. Uh, so what do you think when like somebody like a Jimmy Fallon, Paris Hilton, they talk about these, you know, board eight NFTs, whatever the heck they do on their on their show, like a, a part of me in the cynic in me, because I'm not again, I've said it, I've gotten criticism from the audience before on the whole NFT thing. They called me a boomer, Jonah. They called <laughs> me a boomer. I'm barely even Generation X, like at this point. I'm like a year off from not even being Generation X. Um, My girlfriend this whole calls idea, me a boomer every day, though, so don't yeah, worry. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and one of your, one of your finance, financial people in, in the documentary gets called a boomer. Uh, the whole idea is that... Um, I get worried about the NFT thing and my own criticism of the NFT thing is independent of what is happening with these influencer stocks or influencer memes, uh, meme stocks is or NFTs is that NFTs are easily mined. And a lot of these 
in there they're just i mean uh they're just not fleshed out in the way that the stock market is so again a comic book artist or a musician can have their work mind independently of their knowledge they show up in a gallery somewhere and suddenly they get a cease and desist that this thing has been replicated in the gallery and minted and they have to stop selling the artwork online so it really makes anybody who puts their artwork online vulnerable to a lot of this stuff once that gets ironed out y'all can nft it up all you freaking want but if it's hurting artists which is the one thing it was claiming to not do which was the one thing it was claiming to do the opposite of then i can't get behind it does that make sense Jonah? Yeah, i mean i i'm i'm not an nft expert by any means but i see the value in it i see the value of blockchain and and how these artists will continue to get paid like what if what if picasso's estate was still getting paid off of so the resale, which is something that happens with NFTs. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, you know, I think it's like anything. It's a collectible. You think about baseball cards. You think about all, all, all sorts of sports cards. Like, the values of some of these things are incredible. Cards that come out in 2020 that are sold for millions of dollars. You know, who's to say that, you know, I think you think of the NFTs as, you know, I talked to a friend who's a big CryptoPunks enthusiast, which is one of the original sort of NFT artists. And he has one of them. And he full believer in it and he says something to the effect of this is the first piece of art from a digital revolution you know what i mean and and you know in the metaverse one day you're going to have your own gallery and that's where it's going to be and it's represented in this sort of new kind of you know uh financial you know bitcoin or ethereum and and that is and listen in the end these iconic I do get artists that. these I, iconic well, artists are always going to be valuable because if you're one of the guys if you're one of those five or ten guys board a people you know, crypto punks, you're, they're always going to be valuable because they're always going to be the, the scarcity of the being the, the first ones, the ones that, sure. you know, but it, it's, you know, it's hard because there is, there's a lot of fraud we're reading about too, where it's, you know, I can make something sell it to you for a hundred thousand dollars in Ethereum. Then all of a sudden it's worth a hundred thousand dollars. But like, you know, I gave you the hundred thousand dollars and then you sold it for $50,000 and we've made $50,000 profit, even though we're taking a loss because someone sees it on the blockchain and again, I'm no expert, but I, I know that stuff like that's been going on. That being said, you know, there's, there's, there's a, there's, it's going to be very interesting. Some of the art's cool. Yeah. Some of the art's cool. And some of the art's terrible. Some of the, <laughs> some art of the art's terrible. not theirs. Uh, the, I, I'm watching this artwork and I'm like, that's barely artwork. Like, that's horrid. Have you seen uh, That's somebody stuff? figuring out an iPad. <laughs> no. People's stuff is cool. Like, it is cool. It is exactly what you'd expect, like, these cool NFTs to be. I'm like, down with that. Yeah. Like, like collections of just, you know, intergalactic sci-fi, like it's, it's cool. So with the stock thing, and we're talking about like, there's no manipulation that doesn't happen. Um, these hedge funds, like the whole community. And I feel like GameStop was the beginning of things that did turn into crypto and NFT in this whole to the moon revolution of like, we're going to diamond hands this thing. We're not selling. We're gonna all we're all in this together, and as long as we're all in this together, we can take it to the man. The man being some represented in your film is like these hedge funds, and it feels at at some point like this is a little bit of the pitchforks thing, or it's like you know what this one these one percent point zero 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 one percent really like we're gonna take them down, and you start to see those marches on Wall Streets and things like that. You have a, a, a portion of that in your film. Um, how much did you document of that whole thing? Because it feels cyclical, right? Like we used to have the 99% five years ago, six years ago doing this. Now it seems like every five years we have these marches on Wall Street. 
How much did you document that? I thought about it a lot. I thought about it a lot. I mean, I think that, you know, listen, the, the, the Occupy 2.0 that's happening. Occupy Wall Street was a movement that we all understood what it was all about. But there was no end game to it. There was no, okay, so what do we want? Down with the hedge funds, down with the financial right. systems, Goldman Sachs close your doors. That's not going to happen. If Goldman Sachs closes doors, like, it's going to send ripples that, you know, change everything. Regulation, Collapse. that could happen. But there was no regulation. There was nothing that happened. And we saw a lot of that happen in the pandemic. And and people are being left with the bag right now for a lot of these places collapsing yep. or ha- being dented by the in the pandemic i think biden's doing as well a job as possible to try and figure out and navigate this thing because that pandemic hit things across the board we are literally a country trying to pick itself back up and get the gears moving again um well blake always says you know this story would not have happened if not for covid and i think he's right in that covid put people in their homes it gave them something else they need to do a lot of it you know the stimulus checks too really i think became a lot of people's investment you know money as well um you know people aren't so you got 1200 and you put it all in gamestop huh yeah i think a lot of people did that you know jen as, as one of our subjects was out of work at the time and she she took her she was able to put all her savings in stuff like gamestop because she was getting an unemployment check that she wouldn't have normally got otherwise it was it was a big boost um in a, in an essence the in a sense i guess you know, the government stimulated the economy by giving money for people to invest on <laughs> Robinhood right. and all this stuff, which is really crazy if you think about it. Also, crypto, you know, the value of crypto has gone up over the past few years and people are taking those crypto monies and they bought that dip of COVID. And I think a lot of the people who made real crazy money on GameStop were people who brought that money in for crypto and saw an opportunity. Oh, my God. Um, I remember that money is, got deposited in my account and like three hours later it was gone because I had to get a root canal. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> I was oh, waiting no. in the I was waiting in the dentist's office and I was like, Oh, thank God I got that stimulus because I'm about to get a root canal and I walked out and I was like, There with the stimulus. I could have put it in the game stone. <laughs> <Yeah>, <laughs> I put it in my bought, freaking yeah. teeth. You know, you know that, that Don't eat candy, Geekscape is about a lot Don't of eat sugar. Lot of lot of shares when it was at three dollars a share, you know? Yeah. Uh, but but, no, but the thing that's interesting is so you know we talk about the the, the previous um, the financial the Occupy Wall Street and the Big Short it's an incredible incredible movie okay incredible yeah. movie when you think about the Big Short all of these different characters who had sort of discovered this thesis per se that you know the housing market's going to collapse they were all separate they weren't overlapping they were all doing their own thing and discovered it separately what was interesting mm. about this is because of COVID all of our people in this story were talking online and they were sharing research like financial. People don't typically share research. It's all proprietary. So I always thought of this as like, oh, this is the big short. But these people all happen to come online and become friends together. And and yeah. that sort of – that was probably the thing that got me the most interested in the story. It's like, oh, wow, big short, one of my favorite movies. I see the story. This doc is similar in a sense that you have these people from all walks of life who are finding the same idea, the same thesis, and they're actually coming together. And that, that, that was really special, I thought. There is a heart in this film that I told you early on before we started that about 30 minutes of this movie early on is laying those pieces. And that can be pretty dense information, Geekscapist. But Jonah does a great job of laying this out. You know, he introduces you to all these players individually, but we start to get their stories. We start to see them meet each other online and start to have the conversation and comparison of, of 
notes as, as Jonah just said. The animation helps. The filmmaking is really strong on this stuff, dude. You did a really great job of parsing the information out. In a, <coughs> even for a dumb dumb like me, parsing the information out in a way that it was manageable for, for the audience. You then get to a couple sections where we get to learn some of these people better, right? Jen goes through something really scary. And then the human stuff gets taken to another level. And, and you're just rooting for them at this point. You're like, you know what? I don't even care if this thing goes to 40. I want this thing to go to hundreds because these, <coughs> you've been with these people for a year and a half of their lives, two years of their lives as they've been narrating. Um, we want to see them win, you know? And there's not necessarily a villain in the film. There are a couple people on the hedge fund side who are prominent. They've been doing the same job they've always been doing. And they say, hey, that's my job. On this one, I was massively wrong. But um, I think he did a pretty good job of parsing the information out, giving us a human element, and doing it in a digestible way for it. So Geekscape, is any, if, you, if this is a movie that interests you, don't wait for the VOD. Like, it's in theaters now. Um, maybe you'll get it to VOD. I don't know. Don't wait. I told somebody this morning. I, they said, where can I see it? And I said, you got to go to theaters. If you feel safe going to theaters, we're doing pretty good, Geekscape. Just keep wearing your masks. Um, I think this is a fun one to watch. I really I enjoyed like watching it in theaters. Like it, it, you know, we have a big bold score by Jeff Beal. Jeff Beal, if you don't know him, is a multiple Emmy winner. Way back, he's done some of the top top docs, you know, Blackfish and recently Biggest Little Farm, and you know, he did. He also did the music for House of Cards. You know, he he created mm-hmm. that beautiful bold House of Cards theme. Um, and one of my all-time favorites, uh, he did the music for Monk, but uh, and Console Wars, of course. But but yeah. you know that big House of Cards, you know, orchestral thematic music you see when we bring on these sort of villains, the hedge funds. Um, you know, even though you know it's arguable, hedge funds, you know, as a as a concept are a bit villainous. But you, we also forget that like oftentimes they're managing the money of like pension funds and like fire. You know, like like. You know, it's yes. their money, and, and they're state, making state huge teachers on it. and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a it's a more complicated issue. But that being said, like the hubris that some of them acted with is really it was was, was pretty shocking in the case of GameStop. Um, and you know, being from New York, they're not I, all I, Bernie Madoff. I don't think they're all Bernie Madoff. No. No. Well, I mean, Bernie Madoff is another thing altogether. But you know, yeah. being from New York, you you come across different hedge fund people over time, and I've I've known people at a lot of the big hedge funds and. And, you know, no one at the highest levels, but, you know, they're just really just trying to make their money before they eventually get fired for not making money. It's a rat race. No, it, it really is. It's the fear I know. of these I, I guys a who make who was on Wall Street. millions, millions yes. of dollars, 30 years old, making millions of dollars. But like they're about to get cut off at any time. You know what I mean? And and the amount of regulation they deal with is a lot. It's just it's it, it's a crazy world. But in this particular case these hedge funds acted with such incredible hubris that, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty hard not to dislike them. Although as much Andrew left, who sort of was painted as the bad guy, you know, mm-hmm. in our film, you know, I didn't, even, I didn't want to say that. I mean, he, he was pretty brave for being in the film. Yeah. You know you what? Know, when yeah. we talked to him, we decided, listen, I think it's important to have all sides and, you know, you're not going to get Melvin Capo talk. These hedge fund guys have no value. There's no value for them to talk to you. They're, they're, they're just, they're just going to keep doing their doing, you know, Someone said something to me recently. It's like, oh, well, you know, Gabe Plotkin didn't make $700 million this year. He only made 150 And it's like, well, I guess that the grand scheme of things. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Andrew left. And I, we only wanted to talk to him if he was going to be honest and really just tell us how it was. And if you watch the movie, he really does. You know, the, some mm-hmm. of the things he says. And we try to let him present his 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 point. 
And I think we do, but he's really funny and, and charismatic. And, and I think that, um, yeah, I, I just, yeah, I think it's, it's very, it's very interesting to see his perspective, oh. despite, you know, coming in and saying literally the first line being, Oh, we're bad guys. We're evil. You know, that's what people yeah. think, you know, but we also show Tom Barton, who's a short seller or, or has a short selling history past. And, you know, he kind of tells you sort of what short selling used to be, you know, it used to be you bet on these companies that you know are frauds because, Hey, it's much easier to bet on a company that's a fraud and you know is going to bankrupt or bet against rather than bet on a company that, you know, potentially could go up. But, but what was the ratio like on your footage? Like how, like, cause you had such a truncated window for you and Blake to make this movie. Like a lot well, of it's in the movie, isn't it? Well, I would say so. We early on identify who the subjects are based on pre-interviews and we do a lot of pre-interviewing so that we know exactly what the story is before we go in. You know, there'll be surprises, but we talk to these subjects enough that we know, you know, they're ordinary people. These are people who are not normally sitting out for interviews. We know how to pace an interview where we go on for four or five, six hours and we get what we need and we pace it so that, you know, by hour two or three, we're really getting into the good stuff and, you know, making sure that we get the full story of what, you know, we might not necessarily want to do as much backstory with a certain person because we feel like they might burn out. So each subject we probably spent, you know, we spent like full days with them, you know, shooting B-roll, but also sometimes two days. But the interviews were typically, you know, you had a setup for a couple hours and then, you know, you interview them for maybe five, six hours. Um, and then, you know, the archival hunt is a real thing. I think that we really wanted to make, you know, we had an archival person working before we even started shooting. So we were, we were gathering all the archival of the story and at the same time gathering all the social media. We wanted this to be a film of the internet. We wanted the memes. We wanted to show the energy of, of this story through these memes and through these social media posts, you know, and we had a full-time person just gathering sort of all of that and going back and just kind of going through all our subjects, going through Reddit, going through every sort of potential um, thing. And, that, and, you know, I, you definitely saw all that meme culture in the film. It's awesome. I mean, it's part of the humor of the film. Like you laugh out loud at some of this stuff, but I mean, it's also stuff that you literally saw yesterday. That's how aggressively quick you guys made this movie. The memes aren't even old yet. Like this is, this is a pretty incredible feat. And I think there are a number of Hollywood adaptations planned or the, you know, other rival documentaries and y'all came out of the gate and beat all of them. That's yeah, it wasn't about racing. I mean, it was, it was, you know, our distributor kind of set a deadline for us and it kind of got us excited to do it fast and do it efficiently. This wasn't efficient. I mean, listen, we, we definitely lost, we lost years off our life on this one, but you know, it was fun and it was wild. And the idea that we would be planning to come out on the one year anniversary, you know, neon and super LTD who are distributors are, you know, honestly, they've only been around four years, but they're like the best of all, all the independent distributors out there. They're the best. They win Oscars almost every year. They are, you know, putting out some of the coolest content. I don't know if you saw today, the Oscar nominations flee their documentary got the first ever film to be nominated in three categories. Best. Cause it's an animation film. as well. Yeah. It got best yeah. foreign film, best animation and best documentary. Unbelievable. Who else would do that? But neon. And, and, That's and pretty awesome. Yeah. They're, they're incredible. And so they basically, you know, they're a little bit scrappier than some of streamers and, you know, are we had other opportunities, but it, it, it was like you had, we had to go with them, and they were they were able to make the deal. You know, typically a Hollywood deal could take four or five months to do. 
They made it quickly. They let us go right away. But in return, they wanted to try to get it out on the one-year anniversary because they are great marketing people. And um, and we, we, we did it. <laughs> and we did it at the highest level. I mean, you know, if you look at that animation, obviously you typically couldn't make in that level. We had, you know, one of the best no. composers in the game. We, you know what I mean? And it, it, we really crafted this in a way that, you know, it's a film that takes two or three years, I think. But we had a team in place. We used almost the exact same team of console wars. Um, we had our supervising editor, Doug Blush, who has multiple Oscar wins. We had Josh Bayer and Henry editing again. We had, you know, we brought in Jeff again to do the music and then Mindbomb to do the, um, to do the animation. So we had the infrastructure and it was basically like, as the deal was happening, I was like, all right, guys, can we do this? And everybody kind of dropped what they were doing and, and we did it. <laughs> Dude, congratulations. I really hope, I mean, is, is the Console Wars narrative over at Legendary yet or, or is still or wherever the heck it is? The Console it keeps, Wars. It bounced a little. Yeah, so if you don't know, Console Wars, initially, we sold it to Sony Pictures, Columbia Pictures with Seth Rogen, yes. um, uh, Evan Goldberg, and Scott Rudin, who produced the social network. It was supposed to be sort of sort of the social network of video games. Uh, time went by. They wanted to turn it into a limited because limited series is a more interesting Sony TV couldn't do it. We resold the film, the the film rights based on the book and the doc to Legendary Pictures, which is a big outfit. And then they were going to make it the first original or uh, one of the early originals for Paramount Plus. Yes, yeah, it's series. It's going to be a series. A limited series. Yeah. It was going to be well. It was going to be limited. It was going to be a series. It was basically two seasons in sixteen bits, sixteen episodes, which would cool. I think is a lot of fun. We had a great team behind it. Um, uh, the, the pilot was being directed by Jordan Vogt Roberts, uh, who does the King Kong movies, uh, and Legendary as well, and you know did you know, done, done great great film and TV. Um, and Mike Rizzoli was writing the script. COVID happened, and uh, that didn't it didn't move forward because of that. So right now, Blake and I we can't really talk about it, but we have uh, sure. another another plan moving forward on that one, which is kind of exciting. So we'll see we'll see cool. what happens. Let me send a text, Blake. What is? The <laughs> Just kidding, Blake. Blake's actually in the. He's on YouTube right now with oh, the great. chat room with y'all, and he's saying, "Mindbomb." Uh, Mindbomb you know, is, is the animation yeah, company that we work with. the animation company. Yeah, they were awesome. And uh, and Blake, good luck on the the book you're working on now. I think that's a cool subject. Um, all right, let's get you out of here. All, all right. right, all right. You sure so you don't make anything else? Get anything else? No, you got to go make dinner. You're on a different time zone. <laughs> you notice how it's got Geekscapus. dark behind me? It's got dark. Geekscapus, you need to go out and find this movie. It's called GameStop: Rise of the Players. It's about people like you who, you know, if you've discovered Geekscape, you probably spent some time on the internet, some time on your phone, looking at sites like Reddit and social media and all this stuff, and buying up the memes and the stocks and the. All that stuff. I'm a boomer. Don't talk to me about it. But this is a movie about y'all. Um, I think it, it, it's fantastic. I had so much fun watching this thing, Jonah. Congratulations on it, dude. Thanks so much. Congratulations. This is just awesome. Uh, and congratulations to Blake. Whenever we get around to seeing each other again, um, I'm doing New York trip. Um, I want to congratulate y'all in Let me person. Know. I'd love to meet you in person. All right. That'd be so much fun. Uh, Games again, GameStop, Rise of the Players in theaters right now. Thanks, Jonah, for being on the show. And you can follow Jonah on Twitter to find out when it hits that VOD window. It's at Jonah Tullis on, uh, on, on Twitter. J-O-N-A-H-T-U. 
L I S. I can I can spell. Do you know? That's crazy. I can read. <laughs> Jonah, best of luck, man. You need anything from Geekscape? Let us know. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Of course, of course. And Geekscape, this is Geekscape. Share it with your friends. Uh, we got an episode coming up a little later this week. It might be over the weekend where Ian and I are going to be talking all about this uh, season of Book of Boba Fett. That's our big wrap-up special on Book of Boba Fett. It's been pretty controversial as far as Star Wars fans go. Uh, we're going to have a lot to talk about, so you're not going to want to miss that. Subscribe, share, do all the things you do with Geekscape. I'm Jonathan, and for Jonah, I'd like to say thank you. Uh, don't hate, create. Over and out. <laughs> You're listening to the Geekscape Network.